Good to be back here. Uh, there's several things about Nashville that I've learned. One is I would not want to live there. Uh, it's not a bad place to visit. It's, it's a pretty town, but my word, it's a, there's nowhere you can go without a traffic jam. Let's put it that way. So, the only place I've experienced worse than that might have been Bucharest. Even Rio de Janeiro is easier to travel in because at least you get on the subway or whatever there. So anyhow, it's good to be back. We've been studying in the book of Ephesians for quite a few weeks now, and we're continuing. We're into chapter 5, and if you remember what we've said, the theme of this book is, is the manifold wisdom of God seen in the church. And if you've not been here, that just sounds like a bunch of words thrown together that with no real meaning to it. But what Paul has been preaching to this church, and it's a good church. It's not like sometimes, you know, when he preaches the Galatians, he is madder than... What do you say, matter in a wet hen or matter in a hornet? And, and he, but not in Ephesians. In Ephesians, he has felt great success with this church. Doesn't have the scandals that you read of in 1 Corinthians. Doesn't have that, you know, I give up attitude that you find in Philippians. You ever understand that? Philippians is such a positive letter. But the reason it's so positive is because he's, reading, he, he's writing to a church whose everybody's surname is Eeyore. So if you're a Winnie the Pooh fan, you understand where that goes. But Ephesus, the Ephesian Valley, this is probably one of Paul's greatest successes as a minister and as an evangelist. He has not just established a strong church that's throughout house churches throughout the city of Ephesus. The message has been carried to the Ephesian Valley to other cities and other villages where they're also doing well. So he's writing the church is doing good. But he wants to challenge him more. And he says, you are the manifold wisdom of God, the church. In other words, when we do faith correctly as a body, people get to see God's wisdom. You know, so often when we do things and we talk about what it means to be a Christian and we talk about God's commands, people say it's not right, it's not practical, it won't work. But when you see it in action, you can't deny it. And so when you see a church that is actually living according to the message, we, the church, are that manifold wisdom. We, we, man, we, we display, I, I like to describe it as a tapestry. You know, all the different colors that come together. And that's the other point that Paul's been making. You are all so different. When you're in, you know, when you're in, I don't know what's, what's a good town to describe. You know, if, if you're in... Las Vegas, you're a person from Las Vegas. I don't know if you're you know, Californians are a different type of people. New Yorkers are another kind of people. And when you're in Ephesus, you're all kinds of people. Matter of fact, that might be New York might be the best description of the Ephesian church because people from all over the Roman Empire seem to have come there and joined together. But you know what you get when you put everybody together? You don't get a melting pot. That's what that's 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 an illusion that we've we've talked about is, you know, our country being a melting pot. We're not a melting pot. We're we're just a group of diverse people that don't get along with one another. But when you're the church, and all those different people from all different backgrounds all come together as one, united in Christ, and in the message of the good news, that diversity coming united together. As the church, that preaches that God's way works. 
that divine tapestry that he has woven within the church. But it's not just a matter of getting us all together in one place. It's getting us together under the authority of Christ. So we start off with, who do you imitate? Because chapter 5, verse 1, he's now after he's talked and the reasons that he's given the doctrine and theology, now he's going to make it practical for us as the church. And take that to start with. He is not talking to the world here. Yes, every part of God's word has application to the world. But he's talking to you and me. And he says, if we are going to be this divine tapestry, this manifold wisdom of God, it's only under the banner of Christ. So he says, therefore, here's the standard. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So the question we ask this morning is, who do you imitate? Problem with that is uh, we kind of have our own standards a lot of times. And you ever, you've heard this probably before. How do you get a bullseye every single time? Practice, practice, practice. practice, practice. <laughs> well, that's the hard way. I have an easier way. You fire the shot and then draw the bullseye. <laughs> That's the way you get a perfect bullseye every single time. I don't know if they'll let me do that at the gun club or not. I'm, you know, I, I don't shoot very much, know very little about it, and you know, my brother-in-law tells me all the things I'm doing wrong. We just haven't figured out how to do it right yet. But if you fire the shot, the arrow, whatever it is, and then wherever it lands, paint your bullseye at that point. You'll get a bullseye every time. The reason I say that is because we have a world around us that has defined what's right and what's wrong, good, bad. They tell us what is loving. They tell us what is hateful. And it's always according to not some high standard that comes from the divine throne of God. It comes from what's convenient, what's practical, what's desirable. So we decide what we're going to do, and then we put our stamp of approval and say, this is what's right. They're, you know, the story of Cain and Abel, everybody knows that one, you know, Cain kills Abel. Of course, God has mercy on Cain. You know, and that's sometimes a little confusing for us. We probably wouldn't have had that mercy God had on Cain. Because Cain says, everywhere I go, they're going to kill me. That's no, no. And he puts some kind of mark on Cain. We've got zero idea what it was. I don't think it was a barcode, but anyhow. <laughs> and he said, anybody that touches you, they're going to get seven times worse in their life. And that was actually God's way of protecting a murderer like Cain. But unfortunately, some of the descendants of Cain had that same heart of Cain. And you get all the way down to a story most of us don't know. It's the story of Lamech. And Lamech might be our first serial murderer. He confesses to the murder of two people, a man and a boy. But he justifies his evil say, well, God was merciful to Cain, I'm going to claim that same mercy. If God was going to punish anybody that attacked Cain seven times, then it's going to be 49 times God's going to punish Well, he didn't have any word from God of that. He just kind of made it up on his own. Basically, what he did was he justified his evil using God's mercy. And we live in a society today where we paint those bullseyes. We will take and we will justify anything. We say what's right and what's wrong, then we paint the bullseye. Society that will justify, you know, and this is a shocking list, but this is reality. 
These are some of the things that societies over the ages, and, and even in this present age, have tried to justify. Murder. You think, how? No, no society's ever justified murder. <laughs> they actually had a God in the Old Testament, a false God, that you could sacrifice your children to. So, kids, if you're not behaving. <laughs> but murder. People in society have justified polygamy. They have justified incest. They have justified homosexuality, slavery, abortion, abuse of women, poverty, wars. And the, the list could go on and on of how many things that God says are wrong that the society says, no, it's okay. This is what we do. This is what we practice. This is what we sanction. And there's really nothing on that list that should shock you about society because it's a, it's a dark world. It's a fallen world. Here's what, here's what really bothers me the most. What bothers me the most is that every time evil society justifies evil, it's not long before we hear preachers from pulpits christening those wicked practices. Churches that claim to submit to God will preach why war is okay. Preachers that have been, you know, I've heard these stories of preachers when a woman comes and her husband has been beating her and he says, well, what you really need to do is submit to your husband. Go back there and submit to him. Just to find that evil. You know, that's actually one of my biggest struggles in Romania is teaching. It's, it's not, you know, my goal when I go to Romania is to teach the gospel. My goal is to teach them to obey Christ. My goal is to teach them to imitate God. My goal is to teach them the necessity of baptism in the church and a life that's transformed. <clears throat> you don't know how many conversations I get caught up in where I have to sit there and teach men to respect their wives. Because they actually will have preachers tell them why it's not necessary. We have preachers that have justified the slavery of Africans. And they take a passage and pervert it and twist it. And today we have preachers that are re-examining their stands on <clears throat> sexual perversions. And they're asking the question, maybe we've got it wrong all these years. Why? Because society has shot the arrow and has painted the, tar the bullseye behind it. And now the church, rather than standing against darkness, wants to somehow justify the darkness. But our standard is not the word. The world, I'm sorry. Our standard is not the world. Our standard is God, and our standard is God's word. And this is the message he's giving to the Ephesians because they're coming out of societies exactly like ours. A hundred years ago, if I could have put you in a time machine and sent you back to first century Ephesus, you'd be shocked with what you'd see. <clears throat> Today, if we got a time machine and we took people from Ephesus and brought them up to 2019, they would be shocked by what they would see. We're really not that much different than Ephesus, really. And so they live in a world that has their own standards and everybody has their own beliefs about everything. And remember, I said it was a diverse community all coming in. It wasn't just the color of their skin or their status of, you know, economical status in life. It was beliefs. It was ethics. It was practice. And he says the standard is not the world. It's God and it's God's word. And we don't compare ourselves to the goodness of our neighbors. 
or the average lifestyle we find around us, we are imitators of God Almighty. The Christian standard for life is not popularity. It's not convenience. It's not comfort. It's not what is even reasonable. The Christian standard is God. Now, that list I grabbed earlier, I realized that uh, you know, I gave some shocking examples to make my point. And most people would say, yes, those are destructive ways of life. But some people might be sitting there thinking, yes, Mark, that's wrong, that's wrong, but I'm not so sure about that one. Why? Is it because you had an epiphany because you read God's word and you understood that the church has been teaching it wrong all, the, all this time? Or is it because this is an area that affects your life? I lived in Miami, Florida for about nine months, Sue and I, when we first got married down there in a urban evangelism training, um, whatever you call it, less than nine months. And during that time, there were two churches that met at the church where we were at. One was an English-speaking church. The other one was a Spanish-speaking church. And I only point that out because the, the story involves a Spanish elder. And it has nothing to do with his ethnicity. It has to do with humanity and our human nature. And this elder would preach against abortion. It's evil. It's killing an innocent child. It's taking a life that is not yours. You do not have the right to descend before a God Almighty. He preached against abortion right until his son got a girl pregnant. And all of a sudden, he changed his view of abortion. Why? Because God's word changed or because it touched his own life? We stand firm with God regardless of how it teaches, touches our lives. You have to decide. Is God's holiness and love your only goal? Or does God only get to sit on the throne of your life when you allow him to? What we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 5 is not a list of evils found out there in society, in the newspaper, in social media. But unfortunately, there are evils that are too often found within God's group because we fail to be that tapestry of God's wisdom, that manifold wisdom of God. We fail to imitate God. So he starts out and he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then you look at the next line and he says, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He puts this kind of an, encapsulates this in the setting of an Old Testament worship style, where you go to the temple and you bring your sacrifice and you bring your incense offering and you lay it there on the altar and the aroma rises to the heavens. But he says, we're not going to a temple of stone. We're going to your daily life. You walk in love. Now, a lot of us, we say, yeah, that sounds good. Love. I like love. You like love. But the standard of love is higher than our feelings and our emotions, our wants and our desires. The standard of that love is Christ. So he says, now you have heard the story. We have laid it before your eyes. We have told you everything he said and everything he did and how he lived among us. 
how Christ was and the way Christ loved you and gave himself up for you, that's the standard of love that we're looking for. If you want to know how to imitate God, don't go to the Sistine Chapel and look at the ceiling. Go to the Gospels and read about Jesus. The goal is not to be perfect. Newsflash. And I don't know that it ever has. And that's, you will have to work with me on that because so often that's what we talk about. We talk about sin and uh, harmonia is that word. You know, you, I was going to ask somebody what that Greek word was, but I, it came to me before you could tell me. And it means, remember back to that target? It means to miss the mark. In other words, here was the goal, and you shot wide. You shot high. You shot low, whatever. That's sin, to miss the mark. But so often when we, we say that, we talk about perfection and because we want to be perfect. The goal, actually, is not to be perfect, at least not here in Ephesians. You know, Matthew 5, 48, and, you know, in case you were thinking of that passage, you should have been here for the first hour because we talked about it. The, the, where it says, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word doesn't refer to absolute flawlessness. That word refers to coming to be what you were designed to be in the first place. That maturity, that fruition. The goal that Paul lays before us is not to be perfect, whatever that might be. The goal is to love as Christ loved you. The goal is to put other people ahead of your own wants and your own desires. Because we hear that perfection thing. And you know what? If, if, you're, if you want to be perfect, I won't stop you. You know, all sin and fall short of the glory of God, we don't make it. And we will never make it. It's just not something that we are going to do very well at. But how about the goal of loving other people the way Christ loved? Here's the problem with perfection. Um, <clears throat> I'm a horrible guitar player. So bad that when my son left town, he took my guitar with him. <laughs> and he's never <clears throat> been contrite or repentant about it. I can strum chords and I can pick out notes. But here's the problem. I would get these music books and I'd play and I'd play and I'd play. I've got all kinds of reasons why I'm a bad guitar player. But here's one. Every time I would make a mistake, I couldn't stand it. And I'd have to go all the way back to the beginning and try over again. And invariably, on the next measure, I'd make another mistake. Then I'd go back to the beginning. I would hardly ever finish a song because somewhere in that song, I would make a mistake. And I was unacceptable and I would start over at the beginning again. That's the way we are when we try to be perfect with God. You know, Eddie Van Halen has, he doesn't lose sleep over my plane. <laughs> but what we need is to put other people first. And he says, if you want to imitate God, quit telling me how you got to be perfect, and now God has given you, you know, a standard too high. Or, you know, I can't do that. Therefore, I won't even try. Paul didn't say be perfect. He said imitate God and imitate his love. He puts Christ-centered love as the goal for the church. And for the church to be the manifold wisdom of God, they need to see that as we as a body performing this and living this and practicing it. And maybe that's even another challenge, though, is we have to define love. 
Because you and I want to define love, what it is and what it isn't. Here's what love is for me. Love is an emotion. Love is a desire. Love is a feeling. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my dog. I love chocolate. And you don't have to twist my arm to practice love in any of these areas. But God takes a little higher. You know, we think love is what comes natural. Paul calls us to love as Christ loved us. Paul calls us to imitate God's love. And it won't always be easy. It won't always be convenient. And sometimes it's not even desirable. Ask the mother that changed a diaper at three in the morning. Wasn't what she was hoping for. It's what's right. It's what's needed. It's what blesses. And it's what you can take before the throne of God and stand there with no regret and no shame. Paul starts, though, with this letter. He says, first off, let me tell you what love is not. Now, again, he's writing to a church. This is not Paul standing out in the marketplace, you know. You know, you ever see the guys with the sandwich signs, you know, the, the end is near. Or, you know, uh, used to pass the barn all the time. that said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, you know. Or, or another one, what is it, a... Uh, Luke three, ten. I think, uh, uh, unless you repent, you will perish. Uh, we're always good to preach to the world. Paul's preaching to the church. And he starts and he says, what you need to understand first off is what love is not. It is not acts of selfishness. It is not worldliness. It is not things of destruction. And so he talks about there, he says, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you. This is proper among saints. Saints, says all of us. So the first thing is all these cravings of the flesh, these desires that this is what I want and this is what I'm going to do. That can't even be named among you. It's not an exhaustive list. You, you, you have to kind of go through the whole Bible to get that exhaustive list. But it, it gets the idea. And it gets me to wonder, does God have a Facebook account? You know, does, do you think God reads your posts? Do you think God has seen your pics or your videos, your, your clips that you put on there? Your kids are sharp, so if you're a parent, your kids are pretty sharp. They, they have the Facebook posting that you see and a Facebook page that you see. Then you've got two or three other ones that you're not... You, they're hiding from you, but all their buddies know about it. Do you think God's as clueless as parents are? The things that you say, because it's amazing how we can do one thing on a Sunday morning and do another thing on a Friday afternoon. How we can sing Jesus loves you on Sunday morning and then post something that, you know, would people reading your Facebook account or your, your Twitter account or your Instagram account or whatever it is out there, would they be shocked to find out that you claim Christ as your Lord? Remember, your goal is to be God-centered. God-centered love, not what's cool among your friends. And the question that Paul is asking here is, how is your life blessing other people? And go back to that list of immorality and impurity and 
Greed. Do we really have to define what that means? Can't you just turn on YouTube and say, yep, there it is. Chapter 5, verse 4, he says, even the words you say casually, the ones that ex exit your lips, they will reflect either your love for yourself or your godly love for others. But the next question that matters, because again, we keep going back to this high standard of perfection. And once you know you can't make perfection, then why even bother? But the standard is not perfection. The standard is imitating the love of Christ. So ask yourself, does it really matter all that much? They asked that in Romans chapter 6. Paul rhetorically says, what? Are we going to keep on sinning that grace will just take care of it all? And people will say, aren't we saved by grace? And nobody's perfect, so I'll just pray for my forgiveness. And, I, you know, every now and then, I'm sure God understands. So Paul replies to that, and he says, For know this with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So he says, if you think you can practice these things and just on a weekly basis ask for forgiveness, when you practice these things, you're not a part of God's kingdom. You're not a part of his group. And I, I love how he puts it all together because he says, immoral, impure, covetous. And then he says, okay, how do we define that? Idolatry. In other words, you're worshiping another God, and it's not the God of heaven when you practice these things. And when Paul writes, he's not writing to Hollywood. He's not writing to some street gang on the corner. He's writing to the church. He's writing to you, and he's writing to me. But we can always rationalize, debate, philosophize. It's amazing how often we can do that. And Bible classes... It takes place in Bible classes. You'd be surprised how often in Bible classes we'll say, well, I know it says don't do this or we should do that, but is that really practical? So Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't join up with them. We don't need to philosophize. We don't need to twist scriptures. We don't need to rationalize. We do not need to desensitize things that will actually destroy us. Give me some uncomfortable examples. Unfortunately, I'm giving these because we, as the church, not worried about the world. Remember, the world's the world, the church is the church. But when the world enters the church, we become all too comfortable with the same things that the world is comfortable with. So, here's some terms. Think in your mind, what do these actual terms really mean? Hooking up. Here's another term. Alternative lifestyle. How about this one? Fudging, fudging the numbers. That comes about April 15th, doesn't it? <laughs> Think about what the word gay used to mean and what it means now and why has it changed? What was the purpose in <laughs> using that word to describe perversion. Significant other. What does that mean? Tolerance. See how these terms have infiltrated not just society, but sometimes our own vocabulary. And here's one I hear all the time in church. I deserve to be happy. 
And then we have a flip side of that. Well, they got what they deserved. It's amazing how we could justify our own evil and condemn those that are suffering at the, in the same breath. Here's the problem. You and I are bombarded on a daily basis by conversations, posting, social media, music, TV, film, even university professors that preach darkness, and they make it sound like light. The prophet Isaiah talks about it. He says, watch out you guys there that call evil good and good evil. All you who will substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here's the biggest one right here. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. You and I cannot be the manifold wisdom of God. We cannot imitate Christ. And we cannot be the light that shines in the darkness. When actually all we do is imitate the darkness and justify the darkness. So the question is, how great of an influence is God in your life and in your walk? You know, I preach 30-minute sermons, sometimes a little longer, I know. It might seem too long. I heard a proud preacher who uh, normally preached about 30 to 40 minutes, and he stopped after 10 minutes. Somebody asked him what happened. He goes, well, I hate to tell you this, but my dog ate the, other, the rest of my notes. <laughs> the guy said, well... <clears throat> If that dog ever has pups, can I have one? <laughs> well, I preach 30, 30, sometimes 40-minute lessons. It might seem too long. But we get together other times to try and let God influence our life and our walk, and we as brothers and sisters to influence one another. Some of us are crazy enough to be here three different hours on, a, on one day alone. Some of you, when you came in at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, we were already here. It's the free donuts. I'm, it's, no, no. Now you're going to come looking for the donuts. Talked to a man. He said he'd be here if uh, we had Diet Pepsi. I said, well, I'll put one in the fridge for you. But then we come on Sunday night. Some of us get together on Monday morning. Some of us get together on Tuesday evenings. A lot of us get together on Wednesday nights. The ladies get together on Saturdays once a month. And, you know, if there's another meeting going on that I'm not aware of, let me know and I'll announce that one too. But how about you personally? Are you finding ways to get God's heart inside of your heart? Are you making opportunities for Christ to take the lead in your life? Or is the major influence on your life actually nothing that takes place among these people at all? Paul says you gotta, you got to make it up. A quest. He says, you need to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. It's a continual walk. And he says, therefore, be careful how you walk. Don't walk like unwise men, but like wise. Make the most of your times. The days are evil. Do you really have to have that explained to you to believe it? He says, understand what the will of God is. Love, godly love, doesn't come naturally. Godly love stands at the extreme opposite corner of everything you hear on a daily basis. So we get together all the time to dig deeper, wanting to know what God wants and wanting to know what godly love is really all about so we can practice it. And that's the most important part. 
You know what God's love is all about? Kudos to you. Do you practice it? We practice that love regardless of how popular it is and how popular it may not be. Whether, and you know, you do God's love, whether it's a joy or whether it's a struggle. Because we're loving as Christ loved and gave himself up for us. This is the wisdom of God practiced in the church. And the darkness sees that. And he makes the point here because you're in, the, you're in the Ephesus. There, you know, you read about the silversmith's problems there with the idols, the idol worship, all the different scandals and fights that the church was going on. That was, you know, the church was being attacked on a daily basis, on a regular basis. The preachers were being attacked. And people had come from that dark world into the light of the gospel. So it reminds every single Christian that you were formerly darkness, but now you are the light of the light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. We don't blend in. We shock. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Back in chapter 3, he said this, but I will repeat it. Our job is to bring to light that which is the administration of the mystery of for the ages that has been hidden in Christ and God. Complicated sounding verse. Other it make it easy for you to understand. We as the church practice the truth in a way that spreads it everywhere. And it's, been, it's a mystery. It's a mystery that's been hidden for the ages. But it is revealed as the church is the manifold wisdom of God. We make the world understand the mystery. And what is that mystery? It's not an interpretation of the book of Revelation. It's not understanding what Daniel chapter 7 is all about. It's the mystery of that when you live according to God's ways, it works. And it's right. And it's good. The only reason it's a mystery is because it's the last thing the world ever expected to see. The question we have to ask is, is the love of God, is imitating God, is the love of Christ a mystery among ourselves? Is it the last thing you would expect to see among God's people? If we are to be the wisdom of God before a dark world, we love. Not according to our standards, not according to the world's standards, but according to the standard of Christ, who gave himself up for us. Is that what describes your life? We go on into chapter 6, or, or the rest of chapter 5, actually, and it gets so practical. But it's amazing when we talk about the role of husbands, the role of wives, the role of parents, the role of children, the role of slaves and masters. We'll call that uh, employees and employers today, I guess. It's amazing when we're called to do the things that are written in this chapter, the excuses of why that won't work or why that's not fair. I remember a cross. And most people said, why it won't work. The apostles did all the time. Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. They said, that won't work. 
It's not fair. No, it, but it's what saves. It did work. It wasn't fair. But it was God's wisdom. When we live lives that put others first, based on God's word and not our own ideas, the world tells us it won't work. But it will be manifest as God's wisdom when we put it into practice. And it is what saves. This morning we ask, is that the lordship that describes your life? It should be. We're not here just to go to heaven. We're here to live heaven and heaven's light in this world. And it starts with your trust in Christ. Confessing his name as the son of God before others. Choosing change. That's repentance. A change so radical that we'll bury you right this morning. Right behind me. And when you come up anew, it'll be a new creature. The imitation of God. Whatever you need, we ask you to come now as we stand and sing. Jesus calls us for the glory.